I think I'm on. Yeah. Um, Richard, so thank you so much for sharing that moment with us. Um, that was incredibly generous of you to be vulnerable with us in this service. And I think very few lives get to create as beautiful moments as the moment you just created for us. So thank you. Um, it's a great privilege to be able to start this new series for you. And as you can see, we are now such big deals that we're beyond the rules of grammar. Uh, this new series is called Neighbor is a Verb. We're very excited uh, that we have enough followers now on YouTube that we're allowed to do whatever we want with the English language. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, the, the plan for this series is for us to, to put ourselves under the tutelage, I suppose, of the Word of God and allow God to teach us how to become great neighbors to our city. Uh, and this idea of the neighbor uh, in Scripture probably comes most famously from a story that Jesus tells. You might be familiar with the story or this parable uh, where he speaks about being a neighbor. It starts uh, with a young, legally-minded, slightly obnoxious uh, man asking Jesus, okay, so teacher, who then is my neighbor? I don't know if you remember it or if you're familiar with it, but Jesus goes, okay, well, let me tell you a story, and we'll try to figure out the answer to your question. Um, there's a man who gets attacked on a street and is left bleeding on the side of the road. All of his stuff has been stolen. And luckily for him, there's a priest coming by. Well, actually, not so luckily for him as it turns out, because the priest crosses the road and avoids this unsavory story uh, and rushes on his way because he's got important churchy things to do. Not to worry, there's a second person coming. And the second person coming down the road is a Levite. That's good news. The Levites are the spiritual elite. They're the ones who are closest to God. Surely there's going to be a good end to the story. But the Levite also crosses over the road carefully, blocks his nose, and hurries by as this dude is moaning on the side of the road and flies are gathering and his wounds are oozing. And Unfortunately, the third person who comes into the story is a Samaritan. No one's expecting the Samaritan to be the hero of the story. Samaritans are never the hero of the story. The people from Samaria, there are all sorts of problems with those people. But in the story that Jesus tells, the Samaritan comes to the aid of the person who's been injured. Uh, and if you've read it or if you remember it, he goes to great personal expense to look after this guy, dresses his wounds, takes him to an inn, puts him up, uh, pays his bills, gets him up and running again. And Jesus thinks that this story is the answer to the question. So what was the question again? Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says to the young man, well, who was a neighbor to the injured man? Don't you love how he's flicked the question on its head? Do you see what Jesus did there? The young man is going, how small is the box, Jesus? How cheap can this round be? Who do I have to love? if the instruction is to love your neighbor. Okay, so then how few people can I get away with loving? And Jesus goes, you're starting from the wrong place altogether. Who do you get to love? Allow me to empower you to love as many people as you can. If you want to be someone's neighbor, go and neighbor them. Hence, 2,000 years later, olive tree doing whatever they want with the English language. Now, that's a great insight into the heart of God, okay? It's a great insight into, in fact, much of what God says, which is not about how little do you have to get away with, but how much can I actually make available to you? You don't have to, you get to, is one of the great summaries of most of Christian living. But as interesting as that story is, that's Jesus' answer to the second question this young man asks. The first question he asks is less well remembered. And Jesus' answer is very brief, but I think even more interesting. See, when this young man first comes up to Jesus, and we'll pick up the story in Luke 10, in, in Luke's telling of it, um, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now, before you cheat and read the rest of the scripture, just pause and think for a second. What is Jesus supposed to say? 
What is the right answer you have been taught to that question? Someone comes up to you and says, I want to inherit eternal life. What is the gospel? What, what, what are you supposed to say? What is the correct church response to someone saying, you haven't had to beg to get them to church. You haven't tried to drag them to an alpha, promising them fancy food. You haven't had to do anything. The fish are jumping into the boat. He's standing there saying, what do I have to do? What must I believe in order to have eternal life? How do I get to God? What are you supposed to say? You've cheated. You either know the scriptures and you have no place in this church because we're all supposed to be idiots here. Or, uh, <laughs> okay, no, 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 yeah, yeah, you, you go somewhere where they speak English properly. Don't stay here. Um, okay. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I, I think the correct answer, the Sunday school answer is something like John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and all you have to do is believe in him, and you'll have eternal life. And please, be very careful to only believe don't do anything because you cannot inherit the kingdom of God by works. It's purely by grace so that no one can boast. So make sure you make no effort at all. Simply believe. And then we might add some other little flavor depending on the church you've grown up in. Something like, hey, and if you come from, you might react against this phrase, but it probably is true of most of us. If you come from some version of the prosperity gospel church, you'll say, and listen, because God loves you, the best is yet to come. Things are going to get great from here on. Or if you come maybe from the more Baptist tradition or something like that, you might say, and then there are these great truths, and you just make sure you believe the correct truths from there on, and then things will flow. Or if you come from a more charismatic tradition, you might say, and then the Holy Spirit will come, and all this wonderful stuff will just happen automatically. You will be transformed, and you won't even know how it happened. So just believe. Now, let's be careful. All those things I just told you are scriptural ideas. They're clearly not false. But Jesus, frustratingly, doesn't answer the way he's supposed to. Teacher, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't say, just go read John 3.16 in a few years' time when it's written, and you'll be fine. <laughs> he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the young man answered, as you've heard, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, and you should love your, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus doesn't say, eh, sorry, that's Old Testament stuff, that's legalism, that's works righteousness, forget it. Jesus says, quite right, off you go. Do exactly that, and you'll have eternal life. Now, I'm confused, Jesus. What's going on here? I was told something different, I think. What, why are you doing this? And frustratingly, Jesus answers the same question in different ways to different people. So some other young man in another instance comes up to Jesus saying, how do I inherit eternal life? And he says, sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. On another instance, he really freaks people out by saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. In another instance, he tells some people, well, be like little children. In another instance, he says, don't do anything. Just follow me. It's for free. This is confusing. Why is it that Jesus answers this question in different ways? Now, let's firstly get the question correct. What are they actually asking when they're asking Jesus for eternal life? They're not simply asking about a quantity of life. They're asking about a quality of life. And you would be too. If Jesus walked in front of you, you wouldn't say, Jesus, I want my life to be exactly like it is now, but I just want more of it. If you're asking Jesus for eternal life, what you're actually asking for, what the correct translation there would be, is, Lord, I want a rich satisfying, perpetual life with God. I want it to be rich. I don't want it to be stingy. 
I want it to be satisfying. I don't want it to be bleak. I want it to be perpetual. I don't want to go from moment to moment and occasionally have little glimpses of life with God. I want it to be this immersive experience. And I want it to be with God. I want access to Him. He's the source of life. That's why I'm asking you, Jesus, how do I get that? And as I look at all the different ways Jesus answers that question, you know what I think He's doing? I think He is going after and challenging the assumption in the heart of the person who's asking the question that would prevent them from enjoying a rich, satisfying, perpetual life with God. Someone comes up to Jesus and says, I want to enjoy my time with God, and they are proud. Jesus says, well, you're going to have to become like a child. Someone else comes up to Jesus and says, I want to enjoy my time with God, and they are greedy, and he says, you're going to have to sell everything you have. But he doesn't tell that to other people who have money. Another comes up to Jesus who is so convinced that he has to earn God's love, and Jesus says, there is nothing you can do. Another comes up to Jesus with some other thing, and he, has, he consistently challenges whatever assumption in you or I that would prevent us from enjoying a rich, satisfying life with God. It could be given to us and we would wreck it because we haven't had our assumptions challenged. Does that make sense? I think that makes the most sense when I look at all of his answers, which means John 3.16 is true, of course. But there is a risk that you can take a true biblical principle and apply it incorrectly to your life and miss out on having the assumption in your heart or my heart challenged. That's got my attention. I'm nervous that maybe I have believed a true gospel but haven't given Jesus the right to challenge the assumptions in my life enough for me to actually get any benefit from it. And so maybe I, like most churchgoers, would report, if I'm honest, a fairly unsatisfying life with God, a not particularly rich life with God, moments that are great but not perpetual. I want to make sure I've got your attention before I try to ease the discomfort. And so we're going to do some home economic experiments here. Okay. On the table are a bunch of everyday items that I'm about to reveal to you, you have been using wrong up until this moment. This is going to change your life. You're going to get your money's worth today. Um, but this is, I suspect, what many of us have been doing with the gospel. Okay. So let's start with um, some of McDonald's finest French fries, which apparently French people would want nothing to do with, but we call them that anyway. <laughs> now, you, like most of us, I imagine, if you know what you're about, would buy these and then um, would have a bunch of problems. They're difficult to eat, because if you want to have tomato sauce on them, you've got to open this tomato sauce packet, and um, once you've done that, then you're going to pour, them, pour the tomato sauce on the chips, but as you well know, the problem with this is that all the tomato sauce goes on the top chips, and you have more on the top chips than you want, and none of the tomato sauce gets to the bottom chips. And then by the time you do want to try and eat any of those bottom chips, you get tomato sauce all over your fingers instead of on the chips where you want them. And then because, like most, you're driving your car while eating these, then you get tomato sauce all over the steering wheel. Okay, this is a problem. I'm here to help you today, because you are guilty of a user error. Do you know how this was designed to work? Are you ready? Watch. And that's quite an old chip. <laughs> but aside from that, that would be a great experience. You've been using it wrong all this time. Okay, another one. You are familiar with the humble can and the can opener, right? You know how to use them. Not so fast. I'm not sure that you do. Because if you're like me, you take the sharp bit and you crack it into... No, that's wrong. Not how it's supposed to work. You're supposed to put the little gear in the top 
and put the sharp thing on the side, and then smart people tell me you will never have the gear slip and it'll cut perfectly. The only thing you have to make sure you do is, unlike us, is not buy one of the ones with the <laughs> self-opening handle. That'll wreck the whole thing. So you heard it here first. The correct use is actually to throw the tin opener away altogether and just buy the, the ones that Woolworths sells. Okay, the last two are some of my most favorite. This one I'm sure will work. Um, you know how to get the sugar out of the sachet, don't you? Do you? Allegedly, the inventor of the sachet committed suicide because no one uses them the way he designed them to work. I'm sure that's not true, but the stakes are high, okay? Because what you would normally do is you'll do the shake, you know, give it the... And then you're supposed to tear the one end, which then, if you've got any grease on your finger, means you've got a slightly crunched up, slightly sticky end of the sachet, which then the sugar, which must remain dry, has to then slowly dribble past, right? And you have to wait ages, a good second and a half, for all the sugar to drain out into your coffee, which, considering how much coffee I know you drink, adds up to a lot of time. Do you know what you're actually supposed to do? You know where this was designed to work? Espresso cup. And now the sugar particles have had half the distance to travel and not go past any of your oily finger residue. And if you were to add the second you save on every coffee cup that you drink for the rest of this year, the length, the length of time you will have extra for phoning your mom it's going to be incredible. You heard it here first. Okay, last one. And this is the one that I really don't know if it's going to work. But you and I, I'm told, have been using liquid fruit boxes incorrectly. Because what you do is um, you pour it with the hole facing the cup, right? No. Because what happens when the thing is full, as you know, is that when you start to pour it, it goes belch, 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 and the stuff goes all over the counter. So actually, <laughs> you're supposed to do this. I think this... I mean, it feels like it's going to fly, but I think it should just pour smoothly. Little belch there, but that's what's one belch between friends. <laughs> Mind blown. Okay, so that's all well and good. <laughs> but teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? What if the answer to that question, we've, we've had the nozzle the wrong way? What if we've been breaking the thing in the wrong part of the sachet? What if I have allowed assumptions in my heart that are preventing me enjoying a rich, perpetual, satisfying life with God to remain unchallenged because I haven't given Jesus the right to give me anything other than the simple gospel answer? Before we start moving towards what the gospel actually is, and we're going to spend the next two weeks getting this clear. Next week, we're going to study the first gospel sermon ever preached by a guy called Peter, and we're going to really figure out what it means. But before we do that, I want us to get clear on what the gospel is actually trying to solve. That's helpful for both ensuring that we actually understand what the gospel really is, and also helpful if you, like many, want to have conversations that result in moments like Richard showed us today. If you want to actually be able to pitch the gospel to anyone, you're going to need to have an idea of what problem they have that you claim it can solve. So what are the problems that the gospel claims to be able to solve? What are the problems that all human beings have in common? You have some that I don't have, and I have some that you don't have, luckily for you, but there are some we all have in common. Problem number one, we have a death problem. Number two, we have a moral problem. Number three, we have a connection problem. Human beings all have a death problem. Things die, and they don't feel like they're supposed to. Amen? It's the most insane thing that we keep getting surprised when things die, that we keep getting frustrated because it is so predictable, and yet it always feels unnatural. Of course, most tragically, 
when you notice somewhere around the age of 35 that things about your body aren't working as well as they used to, or even more tragically, when you lose someone, when their body eventually gives up the ghost. But have you ever tried to grow a crop? Have you ever tried to build a marriage? Have you ever tried to raise children who are nice to be around? Have you ever tried to create a church that works or a humane society? This planet promises us abundance. We have this instinct that life is possible, and yet stuff dies. It's hard. We scratch a living on this place. And the reason it feels unnatural, the reason we're offended and confused when things die, is because they're not supposed to. We have a death problem, and there needs to be a solution for it. You weren't designed to live in a temporary, failing world, even though that's all we know. We have a death problem. We have a moral problem. Now, you and I may disagree about what is actually right or wrong, but we all agree that it is not irrational to have that conversation, right? We've just celebrated, that's probably the wrong word, we've just remembered the anniversary of September 11th. The, the whys and the wherefores we may all disagree on, but we're all convinced that something evil happened, right? When an innocent child is neglected or abandoned or hurt in some way, when you say that's wrong, you don't want to mean, I don't like it when that happens. You actually want to mean something bigger than that. We may disagree about what right or wrong might be, but we don't want to be told it's an irrational conversation. You're just talking about your preferences, right? We want some kind of standard. We want it to mean something when we say a thing is wrong or broken or needing to be fixed. But you don't get to have that conversation unless you have two quite important criteria satisfied. For a thing to be wrong, for it, not, for it to be anything more than just not to your taste when a child is abandoned. You need freedom and a referee. If you don't have freedom, if people are not free, it makes absolutely no sense to judge their behavior, right? If I put water over a fire and expose it to that heat, and at some point the water starts to boil, it doesn't make sense for me to say, this useless water can't hold itself together. It's, you know, it's, you've changed. Like, it had no choice. But human beings are not like water, are they? You had no choice about being born, but from that moment on, you've been growing into more and more freedom. We instinctively believe that. That's what makes sense when people do wonderful things, when people overcome their obstacles and choose to forgive, when the Mother Teresa's of this world. If you had to take little baby Mother Teresa and say, she has no choice, she has to do all this lovely stuff, it's because of cause and effect, we can explain it with behavioral science, she has no choice about it, she's going to be wonderful, so don't get too carried away, you'd go, that's ridiculous. She's going to make choices, which is why her life is worthy of praise. And the person who at some point is going to get behind the wheel of an airplane and fly it into a building, you want to say, well, that choices were made. It makes sense to be offended by that. Don't tell me that the little baby had no choice. You need to be free for you to have any kind of right or wrong. And in a purely scientific world where there's no God, where miracles are impossible, where everything can be explained by science, I'm sorry to tell you, you are not free. This has to be an open universe. This has to be a place that's actually free. There has to be some stuff going on that science can't explain if you want to be able to say you're actually free. You also need a referee, don't you? The Springboks would agree. You need a standard. 
You need to be free so that your choices matter. You need a standard so that there's actually any hope of justice. If there's no referee, if there's no ultimate standard, there can be no justice. There's no hope. This is everyone just doing what feels right to them. Now, that all might be a bit philosophical, but every human being at some point in their life is going to agree that they are in desperate need of some justice. And the wise, honest human beings are also very quickly going to agree that while I do need justice and I do need a referee, I'm terrified of that referee. Because if we do have a God, if we are in fact free, if this world is not simply a scientific clock that's been wound up and is now ticking, then I'm going to have to face that God one day. And while there are lots out there who I think need some justice, I don't want to admit, the problem with getting justice is that you get justice. And so we have a moral problem. We need there to be a right or wrong. We need there to be someone in charge that we aren't just left alone in like a scientific experiment. But then I really need mercy. And we need a way to have some mercy for one another. So this isn't just revenge and fighting. I need justice. I need forgiveness. I need something that provides those things. And then our third problem, okay, that one got a little trippy. We've got a death problem. We've got a moral problem. Finally, Hollywood has figured out we have a connection problem. We want to be connected to some big story. That's why from as early as Disney's The Lion King to as recently as Disney's Frozen. Did Disney do it? Whoever did Frozen. And everything in between, Matrix, DC, Marvel. In fact, go back to the story of Exodus. We have always resonated with stories that say, you, sir, ma'am, you're not alone. You're not random. You're not arbitrary. The things you do don't just matter for moral reasons. You're part of a big story. It's worth it for you to overcome your weakness and your fear and your selfishness and find your place in a big story and choose the side of right versus the side of wrong and protect what's beautiful and defeat what's ugly. And as you do that, as you realize that you're part of something bigger, in fact, if you're really going to get this right, if you realize that you belong to someone bigger, then you connect to your purpose. Then you feel part of something. It's why so many of us long to leave a legacy. It's why so many of us long to create something of genuine artistic beauty. It's why others of us long to study the cultures and, and way this world works so we can feel part of the family of mankind. It's why all of us waste time on these stories. It's because you and I know that we're supposed to be part of something bigger. We want to connect to something bigger. In fact, we want to know someone bigger. Now, the gospel, the way to eternal life, needs to deal with those three problems. Otherwise, it's no good to us. It needs to solve our death and fix the fact that things break. It needs to explain it and find a way to fix the things that are breaking and dying. It needs to solve our moral problem. It needs to give us the freedom that this isn't just scientific. It needs to give us an absolute standard so that it isn't just he said, she said. There's actually a right or a wrong. And if we can be picky, it'd be great if it could give us some forgiveness as well. Otherwise, we're in great trouble. We need a new life. We need a new way to live. And then we need a place to live in. We need a context, a, a big story. It needs to give us some explanation for our longing for purpose and to leave a legacy, okay? Those are the three things. And I tell you those because if you're going to have a conversation with someone and you want to introduce them to the gospel, there will be a point in that conversation with anybody on earth where one of those problems will be hurting them, where one of those three issues will be chafing. And that's your opportunity to say, well, actually, Jesus Christ has the solution to those problems. And just think for a moment what kind of solution that would need to be. How big would the solution need to be? 
If you want to solve, if you want to live differently from the way the vast majority of human beings live, you're going to have to be prepared to live in a way that most of them aren't prepared to live. You're going to have to buy into something pretty radically different if we're saying that most of our species are slaves to these problems. Any solution to these problems is going to have to be, I'm sorry, more than a prayer you pray one time and a date you write in the front of a Bible you don't read. That can't be the solution. Any solution to problems those big can't be, I turn up occasionally at spiritually and emotionally cool events and experience a high and then go back to living normally. That can't be the solution. It can't be I just believe a few biblical truths and tuck them away in the back pocket like an insurance policy. It can't be anything so simple as that. This problem is big. I'm going to need a radically different way to live. So the solution is going to have to be big enough to deal with those problems. And like Jesus challenges those people, I think he challenges me. Paul, you want a great kingdom, but you don't want a king. Paul, you want to experience blessing, but you don't want to be part of a pipeline of generosity. Paul, you want to feel loved, but you don't want to make yourself completely vulnerable to the great lover of your soul and give him everything. This isn't going to work. You're not going to enjoy a rich, satisfying life with God until he challenges me. Paul, you want freedom and the possibility that miracles can happen in this world, but then you want to be able to control and predict everything? Pick one. Paul, you want to, you want to not be afraid, but then you want to be absolutely committed to the things that you're terrified anyone takes away from you. Friends, you, you will always remain afraid if there are things that you are terrified to lose. And so Jesus is going, it's fine for you to quote John 3.16 and believe it, it's true, but if I have some assumptions baked in that will prevent me enjoying a rich, perpetual, spiritual life, then it's only right that he challenges me on those things. If I am lazy and consumeristic and I have been treating God the way I treat insurance salesmen, it's only right that Jesus says to me, this is going to take some effort. This is going to require all of you. Otherwise, you're not going to enjoy this. So I think I'm starting to say that Jesus is not looking for friends. He's looking for disciples. He's looking for people who are prepared to apprentice themselves to him and make their whole lives about him, not because he's a megalomaniac, but because he knows that if you don't do that, you're still stuck with the problems all other humans have. We're going to need a radically different way to live. And so Jesus gives us a prequel. Well, God, in his wisdom, writes a prequel into human history to help us recognize the gospel before it comes along for real. God loves to do this. There's a soft launch before the hard launch, right? There's a moment in mankind's story where he lays out the exact same problems and gives us a clue as to how he's going to solve them, what his rescue plan is going to look like. And it is one of those epic stories that have been made into movies that we resonate with, just like The Matrix and so on. And it's the story of Moses and a band of slaves in Egypt getting free. And God is so passionate about this story that he tells his people to celebrate it every year. So get their kids around the, around the table and at Passover cause the kids to ask questions about why are we celebrating this stuff? Why is this poor lamb having to get hammered every time? And because this story is so rich, it explains the solution to these problems. And so just to remind you what's going on is you've got people in slavery who are being mistreated, who don't have enough, who aren't able to make things work. They have the death problem flat out. They have no freedom. They're slaves. And as always happens when you have no freedom, like I was saying, then morality goes out the window because all I have to do is survive 
and take instructions. And so now the Israelites are beating one another up. Moses gets involved, murders the one. So they're poor in every sense. They're even morally poor. They have a death problem. They have a moral problem. And this nation that once thought they were part of some great story has no future, no connection to a big, any kind of story bigger than them. And God comes and grabs them in that moment. And the first thing that happens, remember the plagues? It's like things get worse. God exaggerates just how bad this system is. He hardens Pharaoh's heart. Everything goes pear-shaped. And when it's as bad as it can possibly be, God says, okay, people, you're going to have to trust me. There's going to need to be a sacrifice. Something innocent is going to have to die. Blood will be shed. And if you can trust me, if you totally commit to me, if you leave everything else behind because you realize it had no value anyway, and you put, if you go all in, and follow me. You'll pass through some water, just like we saw this morning. And on the other side of the Red Sea, I'm going to take you into a wilderness, and I'm going to form you into a people. You're no longer going to be victims just out for justice. You're going to be a nation that can actually be a place of safety to others. You're no longer going to just be about survival. I'm going to give you a way to create wealth. You're not going to be insecure any longer. You're going to know that you're my beloved people. I'm going to take you in a totally new direction and challenge you to create a society around God. And most importantly, he says, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will be in the middle of you. And you know what they go on to do when he saves them out of Egypt and they pass through the Red Sea? They form a nation which, unlike every other nation around them, became experts at one thing and one thing only. See, the Phoenicians and the Greeks and the Babylonians and the Egyptians perfected architecture and science and physics and language and mathematics. You know what the Hebrews perfected? You know what they gave us? They didn't give us Archimedes' principle or language. They gave us the Psalms. They became good at praying. They became experts at responding to God. While every other nation was out there seeking after truth, they were saying, we've been found already. We're going to become experts at responding to truth. We're going to become experts at responding to God. We're going to set our lives around this God in the middle of the camp. He is our God, and we are his people. And to this day, they are a people of the text. And they are prepared to be different, completely different, set apart from every other nation on earth. So when God does it for real, when the gospel comes for real, when I say, okay, Jesus, show me the way to eternal life, do I really think the way to eternal life is going to be anything less than that same radical departure? Do I really think it's going to require anything less than all of me? If before it required an innocent thing to die, a people to leave everything they knew, to create a whole new way of living around God, to become a blessing to the nations, to allow blessing to flow, to become obedient to a king, and everything else that goes with it. When I come up to Jesus saying, okay, Jesus, I, I want the solution to these problems. I want, to be, I want to have eternal life, perpetual, satisfying, rich experience of God. Of course it's going to require all of me. My response is going to have to be similar to the, the Israelites. I'm going to have to give everything because it was worth nothing anyway in order that I might gain everything. I no longer want to take the gospel and pour it out of the wrong nozzle and have it splurt occasional life on me but leave me mostly unchanged. Jesus, I want you to challenge whatever it is in me because I don't just want a kingdom without a king. I don't just want blessing without generosity. I don't want purpose without the accountability that comes with that. I don't want freedom while trying to retain all the control of my life. I don't want to be part of some big mega story but then still pretend to be the star of it. 
I don't want to have a Bible that got given to me at great cost that I don't consume daily so that I get to know you fully so that I can make my life about him, no matter how different that makes me from every other nation on earth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have given us such a great gift. You loved us so much that you were prepared to die so that those of us who believe in you wouldn't perish but could have rich, satisfying, perpetual life with God. And we won't be satisfied with any less than that. I know, God, that I have often wanted to just tack on a simple gospel to an otherwise unchanged life. But I think all of us renounce that other life. It's worth nothing to us. All of our fears, all of our reputation, all of our controls, all of the other stuff that used to give us security, all of that familiar slavery, Lord Jesus, we're done with it. And if true freedom means we will obey you to wherever you take us, we're up for that. If true freedom means I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, I'm up for that. If true freedom means that there is now a king in town and it's not Paul any longer and he can tell me whatever he wants me to do and through suffering or blessing, the rest of my life will be spent looking more and more like him by your grace, I'm up for that. Now friends, I was praying this morning and I um, just had the sense that for some of you, I just want to dignify the struggle that you're going through. You may be facing something tough something very hard. And worst of all, sometimes the things that feel so hard, you have the sneaky suspicion that maybe others wouldn't struggle as much as you are. You know, this, our enemy, this world, loves to keep people feeling insecure because insecure people are very easily manipulated. God wants to make you secure in your worth. He wants you to know, not just in your head, but in your heart, that you are absolutely worthy that there's nothing you could do to earn his love, nothing you could do to stop it coming, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Because once I know that I'm worthy, once I disconnect my worth from how well my life is going, suddenly I can get through anything. The smallest burden, if you think it reflects badly on your worth, can crush you. The smallest burden, the smallest suffering, if you think... It's evidence that God doesn't love you that much or you deserved it in some way or it reflects poorly on you. It can crush you. But even the biggest struggle, even the most massive burden, when I am certain that I'm loved and worthy, it's simply an opportunity for me to be purified and for me to find more intimacy with God and to give Him more glory. If you this morning have your worth attached to how well your life is going, you just break that in Jesus' name. You are loved. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I look forward to seeing you next week for Peter's sermon to figure out, or I think Ross might preach Peter's sermon, huh? Both of their sermon. Thank you for being with us. It was lovely to see you. God bless. <laughs>